Good morning, church. It even makes me nervous to hold one of these, all right? Please open your Bibles to John chapter 3. We're going to be spending some time there this morning. If you're a first-time visitor with us today, we are thrilled that you're here, especially those of you who are here from Abilene Christian University. Uh, we are so glad that you've come to help us with uh, some folks that just mean the world to us, and those are the folks out at Medina's home. And uh, we know that they were blessed, and we hope that you were equally as blessed. So thank you for coming to be with us today. Before we get started, let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you, thank you for coming into this world, knowing exactly what awaited you. Um, knowing the um, frustration and the difficulty and the misunderstandings and the injustices and the hurt and the pain and the um, stubbornness you would encounter in trying to save us. Thanks for coming anyway. Thank you so very much, Father, for allowing us to be a part of this church family. Thank you for allowing us, Father, to be a part of not just this body of believers in this place, but we also this morning lift up the Impact Church, who, like us, are gathering together to break bread and to, to sing songs of praise to you, to hear a word from you. God, would you please continue to help unite us together as you did yesterday. As we worked all over the city, Father, in different ways, a large part of that, Father, taking place right up there at the cross. Father, just thank you so very much for uh, brothers and sisters who have a mind to serve, but more than anything else, have a mind to celebrate our oneness in Christ. And we pray, Father, that you help us do that here at KCC. Father, in a special way, we ask you to come be with us this morning and remind us again of the freedom that you have made possible for every single one of us. Through your son, Jesus Christ, it is such great news that was read just a few moments for us. Please help us not just hear it, but celebrate it. And as much as anything, live in it. In your son's precious name, we pray. And everyone said. You know, then a policeman's uniform. Or one of our various servicemen's uniforms of the Army or the Navy or the Air Force or Marines. I really think this little uniform here. It's probably one of the most recognizable in the country. But when you see it, it's not a uniform that's um, naturally attached to respect and honor like maybe the others are. This one happens to be one that's filled with suspicion and dishonor whenever we see one. Most of the time when we see one in one of these outfits, it's because they're standing in a courtroom on television before a trial or alongside a freeway picking up some trash, or maybe on some work detail in one of our community parks. And immediately we know inside them is a prisoner. Someone, at least for the moment, who has lost their freedom and is serving some time in jail. Now, i got to believe, with a crowd that's this size, there's a good chance that at least one of us has spent some time in one of these. I know that's true because I know there's a few lawyers in the bunch. They're not laughing right now. I want to say this right up front. If anything that I say today embarrasses you or humiliates you because you've worn one of these, that is not my intention. It's not at all. 
I don't ever want you to think less of yourself because of anything that I teach or preach in this place. Just the opposite, especially today, because I want those of you who may have spent some time in one of these to know you may not have ever been in better company. You may think you're the only one who's ever spent some time in jail, but I know for a fact that many of us in this room have spent some time in prison. And I want to be the first to say this. I have. I will be the first to confess that though I have never spent time in a jail cell with a suit like this, I want to make clear to every one of you in this room, I have spent time in prison. I have spent time in a place where my life was not my own, where my thoughts were not my own, where my time was not my own, where freedom seemed like it was an absolute thing of the past and I wasn't sure when I was going to get it back. I have spent time incarcerated in what can be described, I think, as two of the most miserable prisons on the earth. The first is the prison of addiction. I wasn't just guilty of breaking God's law on a certain occasion that was embarrassing and hurtful and humiliating. I lived outside of God's will in a certain area of my life for a while. Now, I wouldn't call it living, though. Maybe, at best, existing. We'll talk about this in the future on another day, but I think it's important that you need to know I've done time in this particular prison, the prison of addiction. But there's another prison that I've spent time in much more time in, and that is the prison of legalism. Neither jail, either addiction or legalism, required one of these. But both of them, I promise you, came with an absolute loss of freedom that I never want to experience again. Legalism, by definition, is a prison of every world religion that is based on deeds that are done by humans, Instead of a gift that's received by God. And the prison of legalism is a place where inmates believe that the supreme force behind salvation is you. If you look right and speak right and belong to the right segment of the right group, you will be saved. And the burden of responsibility doesn't lie with God, it lies with you. And so, you've got to go to great lengths to be good. And since that doesn't work very well in this fleshly body of ours, then you've got to go to great lengths to look good and make sure all of the outside world sees you as good, or at least minimally as kind of good. Not this bad, but kind of good. Even though you may be miserable inside. Even though you may be weary inside. Even though you may be joyless inside. In the prison of legalism, I'm telling you the truth, it doesn't matter. Posing and posturings are musts. I know I've been there. Because you can never let the other inmates see that you fear you've never done enough. You can never let the other inmates know that you've got doubts that you don't understand enough. And you know what really is a must? This may be kind of strange, but arrogance. When you're in prison, what you need is arrogance. Because it makes the best cover. Because no one will engage you long enough to probe deeply into the facade that you've maintained to try and just survive. I know because I've been there. And brother, if you come to the conclusion by the end of this message today that that's exactly where you are and you've been spending way too much of your life there, please hear this. It doesn't have to be a life sentence. Thanks to Jesus. When we come to John chapter 3, 
A man by the name of Nicodemus is behind the bars of legalism. And, and here is a little bit of God's humor. As we were introducing ourselves, which is something we really don't do a whole lot of here during one of our song services. Guess who I met over here? Michael Nicodemus. I will have his full attention this entire message. In John chapter 3, a man by the name of Nicodemus is behind the bars of legalism. And Jesus is going to do all that he can to absolutely set this man free. And I can't wait. I can wait all week to share with you how he does this. Nicodemus wears no suit that's going to proclaim him to be a criminal. But I want you to understand the basis of his spiritual life ought to be a crime. He lives in a world of religion that has the word of God connected to it, but it has far less to do with God's power and grace than it does with human effort and skill. And it's criminal because it has God's name associated with it. And get this, it has nothing in it that's good news to anybody. It isn't helpful to anyone. It isn't a blessing to anyone, including those who are incarcerated in it. And you say, well, Jimmy, how can you use such strong language to describe one of God's people? Easy. Because Scripture and Jesus helps us to see how restrictive and hurtful some of the Jewish idea of religion was. They were called the teachers of the law. And the Pharisees, and Jesus says to them in Matthew 23, listen to the word of the Lord. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit at Moses' seat. And so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. No, they tie heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels long. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. Woe to you, Jesus goes on to say, you teachers of the law and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom in heaven in people's faces. And you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Here's what they are. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out the net, but you swallow a camel. Woe to you. Teach of the law and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will be clean. Those are tough remarks to just read. Can you imagine being in the audience, however large it was, when Jesus is speaking those words? No, he's leveling them with those words. It had to be offensive. The Pharisees as a group, however, were so removed, so far removed from true godliness that their effort to kill Jesus in the flesh has to stand out as really. I'm not sure anybody could say anything offensive to that group, but that's exactly who Jesus is talking to. And you need to know. Sorry, Michael. Nicodemus is a part of this group. And is it any wonder that he comes at night then? He comes in the midst of shadows because his colleagues cannot know of this meeting with Jesus. They cannot know because they won't understand. And Nicodemus can't wait until they do. And here's the reason why he's seen too much. He's seen way too much. 
He's seen blind people see. He's seen with his own eyes that people's ears are open who've never heard. He's seen people possessed of demons, freed from them. And the words, the words that have come out of this man's mouth, nobody has spoken like this man. Surely he must be of the very God that my tribe worships and declares creator and power of the universe. And so he says so when he walks into the room and he meets Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God because nobody can do these signs that you do unless God's with him. Now, I don't know what was going on the night that Nicodemus comes to see Jesus as far as the disciples are concerned. But I have to believe that when he walks in, everything gets quiet. These are wharf workers, tax collectors that are gathered here in this room before this holy scholar walks in. And so I have to believe, especially because he comes at night and he's a Pharisee, that this little conversation commands everybody's attention. And make no mistake about it, with his robes lined with tassels and his phylacteries to the rest of the world, this man is a holy man. He's a holy scholar. His name appears on the elite list of the Torah professors. He's dedicated his life to the law and he occupies one of the 71 seats of the Judean Supreme Court known as the Sanhedrin. Sounds impressive? It was. And to the rest of the world, he may look like a person of power and prestige, but I'm telling you, to Jesus, he looks like a prisoner. A prisoner. And so Jesus wastes no time to give him the key to his freedom. Jesus says, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Whoa. That's abrupt. <laughs> How are you doing? I kind of think what you're doing here must be of God. Unless you are born of the kingdom of God, you cannot see the kingdom. Of God. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Whoa. That's abrupt. When someone's in prison and you've got the key to their freedom, abrupt's a good thing. And so Jesus is. And he has to be because the philosophy that this man is living under, that has him incarcerated, is deadly. Not just for himself, but for everyone else around him. Jesus says, Nicodemus, if you want God to reign in your life, I'm telling you, you're going to need more than just a little manicure. You need a makeover. You're going to need more than just a little tune-up. You're going to need an overhaul. You're going to need more than just some fresh paint and some carpet. You're going to need a complete remodel. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Now, that stuns us who hear that. But we've heard that most of our religious life, if we spent any time with Jesus in the Gospels. But Nicodemus is hearing this for the very first time. Be born again. Really? He says this. Now, how's that supposed to happen? Am I supposed to, to go to my mother and, and be born? I mean, reverse tape, start all over? Listen, I've worked real hard to get where I'm at. And Jesus says, yes. If you want in on what you see and what you hear, this kingdom of God, it means starting over. And here's why. 
This isn't legalism we're talking about. Jesus goes on to explain. This is not something humans do. We're talking about something that God does through His Spirit. Where you no longer are the source of strength and power. God is. Now, I love what happens next because right about then I have to believe a breath of air just blows through that little setting where Nicodemus and disciples are, are listening to this go but born again, uh, back to my mother. Uh, I have to believe enters the room because Jesus shifts a gear and says, Nicodemus, is your strength and energy capable of telling this wind to stop blowing? No. Is your wisdom and strength able to tell it stop? Does it ask for directions from you? No. That's the way the reign of God is going to be founded in your life. Not by your power or your performance, but His. Interesting interchange. And if it was me, I guarantee you the questions would be all over my face. Well, that's not what I've known serving God to be like. How is that even possible? And in this moment, Jesus delivers to Nicodemus the key for all of us who've spent time in our very own personal prisons of legalism. Words that we've wanted to hear that I guarantee you at first sounded too good to be true, may even now sound too good to be true, but they're true and they really, really are good. I don't know the young man's name who read him a few moments ago, but I can almost guarantee you because you've heard him so often, you've heard him on autopilot. But hear them again. It is the key to freedom in Christ. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God so loved, not loathed it, loved it, that He gave, not ordered, not commanded, but He gave His only Son, not a new law, not a new regulation, that whoever, from wherever, who's done whatever, whoever would believe in Him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. Let me ask you, is that good news? It sounds too good to be true, though. You mean that's it? Now, Nicodemus heard a lot of things in his discussions on salvation, but I promise you, this is the first time any discussion on salvation wasn't attached to rules that are given or a system that's offered. No code to decipher? No ritual to be demanded? No. Jesus says it plainly. Everybody... Everybody, whoever trusts in the Son can have life that has no end to it. And the first time that I really heard that, i got to tell you, it was, yes, that has to be right. I've been walking with Christ for almost seven years, and it was on a college retreat, maybe very similar to the one that ACU was on. And we were singing a song. I don't even know that it's really a song that we sing anymore, but it's, it's just verses from the Gospel of John that we were singing. And as we were singing this verse, it just nailed me in my heart. Yes, Lord. I believe. I believe. I believe. 
But I don't know how to do this when it's on you and not me. You see, almost all of my seven years of walking in Christ, I served amongst the people that taught me a religion that was a have to and a right to. Here's what I mean by that. You have to take communion and you better do it right. You have to sing a cappella and you better do it right. You have to be baptized and you better do it right. And I know you've got to call your preacher by something, but you better choose the right name and it ain't pastor. I, I grew up, okay? You may not have grown up here. You may not understand this prison of legalism, but I grew up with I have to get it right or I'm wrong. Deadly wrong. Forever wrong. And you know what that does to a person? It sucks the life out of you. And, and yeah, I knew, I knew the resurrection had to be true. I, I believe that the cross and history and all that pointed to that. It was evidence that demanded a verdict. But I'm telling you, this have-to religion was killing me. And then on one weekend retreat, singing the words of Scripture, Yes, Lord, I believe that You are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. I believe. And I was free for the first time, I think, in my entire Christian life. I was free. Because it hinged on Him, not me. It wasn't a have-to religion. It was a He-does religion. And I like that one much better. Amen? I can't. I can't get this right if it depends upon me. I've lived it too long. But if I know He gets this right, oh, that's better. And I'm telling you, immediately my walk with Christ got better fast. I didn't want to serve Him less because of this incredible grace that I had found. I wanted to serve Him more. I was so grateful that it didn't hinge on me, that it hinged on Him, that I was getting out of this prison of have to get it right. That I really believed He got it right. And that was enough. It was settled. And I'm telling you, it set me free. And maybe, just maybe, your name doesn't have to be Michael Nicodemus. But maybe, just maybe, a Nicodemus wandered in here today. And you've been in the same prison that I was in. Mine was just for seven years. Maybe yours has been for 50, 60 years. It still doesn't have to be a life sentence. If you'll believe that it hinges more on Him than it does you. I'm telling you, when that happened, verses came alive in the Scripture. I had, i got to be honest, I had just set aside because the Baptist quoted these Scriptures. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works. So nobody gets to boast here. Romans 5 verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've gained access by faith into His grace in which we now stand. And I love this in Romans 9.16. It's one of my favorite verses that I hang with all the time. It, it comes after a, a little verse where Jesus is, or God's talking about how does His compassion work? And verse 16 says, It does not therefore depend upon human desire or human effort, but on God's mercy. 
Romans 8 verses 31 is one that I write to almost all the kids that have been baptized in the Christ this year. With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his son, is there anything else that he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? Wow. You mean Jesus as my Lord has more to do with him loving me than it does him ordering me? Yes. And I'm telling you, when the offer of God's grace-driven life enters the cell door of Jimmy's driven life, it got really good fast. Really good fast. Now, it took Nicodemus a little bit less time than me. It took me seven years to see it for myself. We don't see Nicodemus again until John chapter 7. And by this time, the popular of Jesus is literally off the charts. And as such, it's become a bitter pill for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to swallow. You see, for all the Pharisees' discussions about proper techniques of making disciples, along comes one untrained, homeless rabbi from Galilee. And he bears more fruit in a few months than all the Pharisees in one generation. And they are jealous. And they are angry. And in John chapter 7, they're plotting how they can silence this rogue rabbi. And they're in the midst of working out some kind of accusation to defame him when it's Nicodemus in the midst of these other 71 members of the Sanhedrin who speaks up and he says, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him and finding out what he's doing? Not exactly a bold confession for Jesus, but more than a couple of nights back when he came under the cover of darkness. In the presence of shadows. When there was only other Jesus followers around. But still, good on you, Nicodemus. This is broad daylight. This isn't among other Jesus admirers. This is in the midst of a lynch mob, possibly. And so, here are the response that comes. Are, are you from Galilee? It's not exactly the worst slander in the world, but it is a little snarky. Are you from Galilee? Have you not read your Bible? There's no prophet that comes from Galilee. You know what Nicodemus says? Nothing. And you have to believe because he says nothing, maybe it's game over. Maybe he's folded. He can't risk his position. He can't risk his reputation. He can't go public anymore with this. It costs too much. But this isn't the last word on Nicodemus. In John chapter 19, Nicodemus' name appears one last time in the Gospel of John. Jesus has been crucified and his body has been taken down for burial. And here are the words that we read that Jesus' best friend had to make sure we knew. Joseph of Arimathea, he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he was intimidated by the Jews. He petitioned Pilate to take the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. And so Joseph came and he took the body and Nicodemus who had first come to Jesus at night, now came in broad daylight carrying a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds worth, and they took Jesus' body and following the Jewish burial custom, wrapped it in linen and spices. Good on you, Nicodemus. Good on you. 
It's amazing when the most dedicated followers of Jesus are hiding in fear. The one who once came under the cover of shadows and darkness makes it clear in the light of day. I believe this man is who he says that he is. And I'm going to put it all on the line in broad daylight that anyone who wants to know knows clearly I am a follower too. Not just an admirer. Which one are you? Admirer or follower? This isn't the last time that we hear of Nicodemus. It is in Scripture. But history records for us that this man's name is connected with martyrdom. 30, 40 years later, it's still on the first century. Nicodemus gives up his life for Jesus. Not an admirer. Follower. So was Renee Rhymes. It was really hard to follow Jesus when I didn't love myself, she writes. For years I have struggled with an eating disorder. And I know now it's something I will always struggle with. And although I have made considerable progress, there are still times when I struggle. What I'm discovering, though, is that those are the times that I'm ignoring God's voice in my life and following something or someone other than Jesus. Looking back on my journey, I can see that I was trying to handle the sickness on my own. And because I tried to be the one in control, I was not only damaging my own life, but the lives of those around me. I was only able to worship and love Jesus as long as I was at peace with my body. But when push came to shove, I wasn't willing to set aside my selfishness and my vanity. And I wasn't willing to love and serve everyone, including God, in spite of my own struggles. A follower of Jesus dies to every disease and insecurity, no matter how hard and scary that it is, and allows him to take control. You see, for the longest time, I couldn't bring myself to give the controls of this area of my life over to him. Finally, I surrendered everything to him. When I was baptized and lowered into the water, I was consciously giving up a lot of things. I was trying to let go of a lot of stuff, including control over my disease. But honestly, it hasn't been easy. Dying completely to this disease has been the biggest struggle of my walk with Christ. But it is different now. Before I had tried and tried to find victory, but now instead of just trying, I'm trusting the power of the Holy Spirit. And each day starts with denying myself, surrendering to Him and living in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's how I started today. And that's how I will start tomorrow. My name is Summer Rhymes. And I am not an admirer. I like trust much better than try hard. I like God fixes instead of Jimmy fixes a lot. And I'm living more than I was in my first seven years of ever following Christ in one of these. You couldn't see the orange. It didn't have the lettering on the back. But I'm telling you, I was in prison. And I don't know if you walked in here this morning in some type of a prison. Maybe it's not legalism. Maybe it's, maybe it's anorexia. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's lies. Maybe it's anger. I don't know what it is. But there are a lot of prisons that people spend time in 
long periods of time in that have nothing to do with what you can see on the outside. Nothing. And so we invite you this morning to freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Free. And you can taste that today. But you can't just be an admirer. Nah, you got to go all in. <laughs> you can't just kind of halfway do this thing. Ah, you know, uh, you do your best and God does the rest. Nowhere in the Bible. Not there. You do your best and God does the rest. No, He does it all. He does it all. And that is so freeing. Come get you some, alright? Come get you some. Don't wait another minute. Don't stay another moment behind those bars of I can't get out. I can't be free. I'm begging you. Come get in Him. And you know what happens when you come get in Him? When you say yes publicly and you're baptized in the Christ? You know what the Bible says? You get new clothes. You're clothed in Christ. And all the Father ever sees when He looks in your direction is not, Oh, Him. He sees Christ in you and around you and through you. And that so makes Him smile. Whoever, whatever, forever. That's good news. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. We're just thrilled that we didn't have to make this up. I wish I could have preached it better, but we didn't have to make this up. Thank you for not asking us to live another minute under the law. <laughs> the people who tried, they didn't do well. They sinned more, your Bible says. Not less. Forgive us, Father, for waking up one more day and trying to do it on our own when you said, I've given you power, I've given you a person. Please, God, help us believe it's true. Whoever, no matter whatever, forever, in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief, please. I ask us humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to get in on some new life today, I'm going to be standing down here. We'll baptize you in the Christ this moment. If there's any prison that you feel like as a believer that you've been in far too long, I'm going to have my shepherds at the back and some at the front who are here today that in Jesus' name will pray for you to be free today. Bring Christ your broken life. So marred by sin, I promise you, He will create anew and make you whole again. Let's stand in this praise.